So we are continuing our study today in the book of Revelation, chapter 11. After uh, today, we will be officially halfway through the book. So turn to chapter 11 if you have not already done so. And let's read this together as we get started this morning. The Word of God says in Revelation chapter 11, we're going to read down to verse 14. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles. And they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees of the, and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. Now when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified." Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Now after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them. And they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on them who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. In the same hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake seven thousand men were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly." Lord, as always, we ask that you would give your blessing and your understanding to the reading of your word and to the preaching and the teaching of your word. Lord, we need to hear these words, and it's no accident that we are here today listening to them. And so we trust that you will speak to your servants, for your servants are listening. And Lord, we are open to hear and to receive anything you may need to speak to our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to remind you that the book of Revelation uh, contains more than 500 allusions to the Old Testament, and that 278 out of the 404 verses in Revelation make some reference to the Old Testament, and it's no different today in the passage that is before us. Uh, JR, if you could please bring up, or Jesse, that um, first slide of the uh, presentation. 
We've been talking about the end times here in the book of Revelation. We are in that red block called the seven-year tribulation. We are specifically in the first half of the time of the tribulation. The three and a half years that form the first half called the tribulation. And then in the, when the, the beast or when the Antichrist goes into the temple of God and goes into the most holy place and declares himself to be God. At that point, he triggers what is called the abomination of desolation. And that starts the second half of the tribulation, which we often refer to as the great tribulation. So with chapter 11, we are still building up to that point. And one other thing I want to remind you of as we cover this material this morning is that in Western thought, we think logically and sequentially, but with Semitic thought or Hebrew thought, we think of repetition. And we think about giving the high-level overview, and then we come back and we keep filling in details and bringing us up to date. And that is exactly what is happening here this morning. We are in the first half of the tribulation. We are filling in details in chapter 11 leading up to the time when the Antichrist goes in and commits the abomination that causes desolation. And so this isn't so much a sequential thing as it is these are things that are happening throughout the course of that first three and a half years. One other thing to note for us this morning is that this issue with the two witnesses, while it does infect the entire earth, or affect, rather, the entire earth, it is a very Jewish scene, because these two witnesses, which we'll talk about the the potential of their identity in a moment, these two witnesses have something to say in the name of God. And so as we begin here in chapter 11, verse 1, Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. So John was told to go and to measure what is called uh, the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. If you could go to the next slide, please. We've been talking about uh, the next slide, please. The seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, and we are in this period between uh, trumpet number six and seven, that period of time called an interlude, and here in the end of chapter 11, we're going to get to that seventh trumpet, and so during this time, God is bringing us up to speed on things that are happening during that first half of the tribulation. If you'd like to go to that next slide, please. So what John is told to do here in chapter 11, verse 1, is to to go and to measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. Now, the, the temple of God has not yet been rebuilt, but we know that it will be rebuilt by the time the tribulation begins, because during that first three and a half years of the tribulation, after the Antichrist has come and made a treaty or a pact with the nation of Israel and ultimately with the world, he will be allowing the daily sacrifices to go on just as they did in the Old Testament. So the question is, where will the third temple be rebuilt? And uh, people have made careers out of this, so we are not going to spend a lot of time trying to figure all that out. 
But the image on the left, if you can read it, you can see at the top it says the Dome of the Rock, and at the lower portion it says the Al-Aqsa Mosque. This is a screenshot from Google Earth two days ago when I was putting this together. And so you can see uh, a current view of the top of the Temple Mount, and then the one on the right is more of a, a perspective view. And you can see that the wall that goes around that portion is sort of elevated. And so the top of the Temple Mount is an area that's a large flat area, and, and right now it is pretty much occupied by Islam. And the top part where the gold dome sticks up that you're seeing on, on the left looking down from the top, again, is the Dome of the Rock. And then the building closest to us, again, looking at the picture on the right, is more of a perspective view of the mosque that is there. And so you can probably see, although not too well, a red A, a B, a C, and a D. And those are theories of where the temple would be rebuilt the most viable theories being the A and the C, which is just north of the Dome of the Rock. So this is looking north, north to south. So, uh, excuse me, just north of, yeah, the Dome of the Rock, or just south of the Dome of the Rock between that and the Al-Aqsa Mosque. And so John is now being told, assuming here that the temple is being built in Revelation chapter 11, verse 1, the angel gives him this measuring rod and says, rise and measure the temple of God, the altar and those who worship there. You may wonder, why is he told to measure it? <clears throat> because in Hebrew thought, when someone was told to measure something, it was because they owned it or they were going to own it. And certainly the temple of God belongs to God, does it not? And he's told to, to measure the temple itself, the altar, and those who worship there. So during this time, you know, again, we don't know, is this at the very beginning of the time of the tribulation? He's told to do this or sometime in that first three and a half years. The, the, the exact timing of when he does this is not known to us. But John is told to go there and to measure it. And notice he's also told to measure the worshipers, those who worship there. So I don't think the idea is that John is standing at the entrance to the temple, taking everyone's height as they come in to worship. The idea is understanding that something is happening, that the worship of God is taking place again in the temple. But remember, the temple was destroyed at the end of the first century in 70 AD when Titus Vespasian went into Jerusalem and tore it down. And remember, much of the book of Hebrews is written about how Jesus is saying the temple itself, the temple sacrifices, no longer mean anything since Jesus, the Lamb of God, came and his, his blood was put on top of the mercy seat as a perpetual offering for us. So the Jews will reenact uh, all of the Old Testament laws and they will begin to make the sacrifices on a daily basis. Now, something that you can do for further um, homework if you're interested in this kind of thing, in the lower right corner of this slide, I've put two websites. One is called templemount.org and these are the people talking about where the um, the the location of the third temple would be built, and the templeinstitute.org. This is a group of people who are specifically working on 
rebuilding everything, putting everything in place, weaving the garments for the priest, uh, making their headdresses, making the vests, making the pomegranate tassels that go around the bottom of the priest's garments. Uh, They had to go out and find and recultivate the red heifers, which are used on the Day of Atonement. So um, they went and they've, if you go there and read this, it's fascinating. They've been working on this for years and they actually do weekly YouTube videos where they update from the Temple Mount what's been happening in the course of their work. And the interesting thing about all this is that people are getting ready. In the last few years, these people have been getting ready for the rebuilding of this temple. And I don't think it's because they know this is about to happen. I think God has put it in their hearts to do this. And there's just this stirring in their hearts to rebuild the temple. But the problem that has to be solved humanly from their point of view is right now, if they just went up there and said, we're going to claim this piece of land and build the temple, that it would create World War III. And so they can't go until the Antichrist negotiates the peace treaty and tells them where they can build their temple. Now they want to build the temple and what they believe the original uh, place that the temple was built would be located. Uh, We're going to have to let them sort that out. Um, And again, there's much conjecture. If you go uh, read templemount.org, you'll see all the theories behind that, which we're not going to spend time on here. But I say all that just to say that John here in chapter 11, verse 1, is told to go and to measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. Previously in the book of Zechariah, chapter 2, in a similar manner, a man is seen uh, measuring uh, Jerusalem and the temple area as well. So in verse 2 here, he says, But leave out the court which is outside the temple. And do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. So during the time that John is told to measure this, and I probably should have put a picture of the temple up there and how it's constructed, there's the temple proper itself. And then outside the temple in the front area, uh, there are two major courtyards. There's the court of the women and the court of the Gentiles. The court of the Gentiles is that larger court that larger outer court that you may recall from your, your Bible reading and study that Jesus twice o- overturned the tables of the money changers. And those tables were set up in the court of the Gentiles. And remember, Jesus with vehemence had uh, turned over those tables and said, my father's house shall be a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. And what they had done was corrupted the court of the Gentiles, which was meant to be a place where the nations could come to God and come into the presence of God. But because the the money changers, the people who had corrupted it and made it about profit rather than about the ministry of the Lord, uh, Jesus, of course, went in and, and turned those over and declared that they were doing something that was incredibly wrong in the eyes of God. So in this time period, once the temple is rebuilt, and again, looking at this here, you may say, uh, you know, the temple, you know, is going to be facing a certain direction. Where would the outer court be? And he's saying here basically that the outer court, the court of the Gentiles, 
He says, don't measure that for it's been given to the Gentiles. In other words, when the, the understanding is when the abomination of desolation takes place by the Antichrist, which we'll get to in chapter 13, he's going to say that area has been given to the Gentiles. And in this case, while Gentile means Gentile, as you look at this picture here, Gentile also means those who own the land. And in this case, uh, the Islamic peoples, the Islamic nations who uh, are going to trample the city underfoot for 42 months. Now, 42 months is three and a half years. And the question is, which 42 months? The first half, the first 42 months, or the second 42 months? And we believe that this treading the holy city underfoot for 42 months is speaking of the second half of the tribulation, the great tribulation, which after the Antichrist has gone in and declared himself to be worshiped, will cause this uprising to come in and the Gentiles to come and to tread the holy city underfoot. The reason for that being as we get into the ministry and the witness of the two witnesses is to understand that while they are there ministering, no one will be able to do this. There will be no trampling of the outer courts while they are there ministering. There's two perspectives on Where will these two witnesses be positioned for three and a half years, for that first three and a half years? Will they be in the outer court of the temple or will they perhaps be down at the wailing wall? And again, looking at the picture on the left, you can see the red dot that says the Western wall, which is the wailing wall that you've seen pictures of. And so that's down to the lower part of the, uh, the mosque, which is in the bottom part of your picture. And I don't know if you've ever been there. Probably a few of you have. I've been there. And it is an incredible sight to see. I was not able to go up to the, temple, to the mount, but I was able to go to the Wailing Wall. And it is so surreal to be there. So wh- where will these witnesses be in their ministry? Will they be at the Wailing Wall, as some think they might be, or will they be actually up at the temple? Um, You can figure that out for yourself. We're not told specifically. But these two witnesses will be there to fulfill the ministry that God has given them. And notice what it says here in verse 3. And I will give power to my two witnesses. And they will prophesy 1,260 days, which is 42 months. And they will be clothed in sackcloth. So these two witnesses, God will put them there, and let's just, for the sake of discussion today, say that they're in the outer court of the temple. And they will be there, and every single day they will be prophesying, they will be ministering. And when he says that they are clothed in sackcloth, he's saying that they will be like the Old Testament prophets. So uh, again, much, pe- much speculation has been spent on trying to understand who these two people are. They're not identified for us, but I think a strong case can be made as to who they might be. Some, of course, think that uh, one of those, sort of a shoe-in, is the prophet Elijah. We'll get to that in a moment, but the other one, the second person, is the subject of, of the greatest speculation. Some believe that Enoch might be one of those witnesses because both Elijah and Enoch were people that were taken up into heaven. They were an Old Testament picture of the rapture. They did not die. They were caught up into the presence of God. And that's a possibility. Uh, And there are other theories, but the only other one that makes any sense really is Moses, Elijah and Moses. 
And we'll talk about in just a few minutes as to why I think that makes the most sense. But uh, these two witnesses will prophesy 1,260 days. And we aren't told specifically what the content of their prophecy is or the content of their ministry. But if they are indeed Old Testament prophets, and if they are indeed there to proclaim the day of the Lord, which is talked about so often in the Old Testament, looking forward, the the book of Joel, Uh, the time when Israel would be brought into captivity, uh, the minor prophets, the major prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah. Those prophets, when you read them, were speaking God's word, saying that get ready, because if you don't repent, if you don't change, bad things are coming. That is a very high-level summary of their prophecies. Of course, there was much detail behind that. But these two witnesses, we're told, are empowered. They are empowered, we assume that means, with the Holy Spirit. And God gives them the ability to do incredible things. Verse 4 again describes more about these two witnesses. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. Now remember at the beginning I mentioned Old Testament illusions. In the book of Zechariah chapter 4, there are two passages that speak of this issue that use this same language that talks about the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. You see, that's not spoken of anywhere except in the book of Zechariah. And in the book of Zechariah, as it's spoken of, it's spoken of the two men there who are there ministering. So let's go read it in Zechariah chapter 4, if you want to turn there, or you can just listen. Zechariah chapter 4, verse 1, now the angel who talked with me, this is the prophet Zechariah speaking, came back and wakened me as a man who was wakened out of his sleep, and he said to me, what do you see? So I said, I am looking, and there is a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it. And the, the stand, seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps. Two olive trees are by it, one at the right of the bowl and the other at its left. So I answered and spoke to the angel who talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. So he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And going down to verse 10. For who has despised the day of small things? For these seven rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. They are the eyes of the Lord which scan to and fro throughout the whole earth. And then I answered and said to him, What are these two olive trees at the right of the lampstand and at its left? And I further answered and said to them, Uh, What are these two olive branches that drip into the receptacles of the gold pipes from which the golden oil drains? Then he answered me and said, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. So he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand beside the Lord of the whole earth. So we come back to Revelation 11.4. These are the two olive trees. Definite article. 
that what two olive trees? Zechariah says the two anointed ones who stand beside the Lord of the whole earth. Uh, and the two lampstands before the God of the earth. And the picture that's being given there in Zechariah chapter 4 to strengthen Zechariah as they were there doing their work, rebuilding Jerusalem, restoring the temple worship, is he was giving him a heavenly picture so that they could continue on. In the spirit, they were being strengthened so that they could minister in the flesh, so that they could do what God wanted them to do. And so this picture was made of the menorah there, and that there were two, uh, two lampstands, two menorah, and that there were uh, two olive trees there. And the olive trees basically somehow had been plumbed directly into each of the receptacles so that they would never run out of oil. And we know that oil was a symbol as in this passage, as in many places, of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So what is the picture putting all of this together? In Zechariah 4, the picture was the lampstands would be there. They would be supplying light in the presence of the Lord and they would never run out. It would be perpetual because the Lord himself was providing the oil, the Holy Spirit for the fuel to keep the lights on. And so there in the presence of the Lord in the temple, there would never be darkness. There would always only be light. Now, if I put a comma there and I fast forward to the end of the book, we're told that in the time when God reestablishes his temple, the heavenly temple, and we're allowed to see into what that heavenly temple looks like, he says on that day, the light will be the lamb himself, Jesus. There won't be a need for a menorah in that day. Jesus will be the light. So here we are Uh, being told that these two witnesses will be men who, for whatever reason, have been in the presence of the Lord. Could they just be two angels and not two men like Moses and Elijah? They could be because we're not told who they are. But we are told in verse 5, if anyone wants to harm these two witnesses, notice what it says. Fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. So when else in history have we ever been at a place where the entire earth could see what's happening at one particular point on the earth, but today? Certainly the technology exists today so that the whole earth can see when the ministry of these two witnesses is happening. When the temple has been rebuilt, we'll probably see, you know, we won't be here according to my understanding, but we'll probably see daily pictures like this, except the temple will be in that picture. And there will be like a a drone view footage of these two witnesses standing out there, these Old Testament prophets dressed in sackcloth with their beards looking like Moses and Elijah or something like them. And they will be there every single day for three and a half years, for 42 months, for 1260 days, ministering. And a microphone will be on, or God will somehow allow their voice to be heard. And they will be preaching Old Testament prophecy. They will be preaching the things of the Lord. They will be preaching things like repent for the day of the Lord is at hand. 
And we are told that people will be going out of their minds, that they will be going crazy. You think censorship is bad now and cancellation of messages that people don't want to hear, such as the message of the gospel, the message of truth, or anything that comes out of God's word that speaks against this current culture. You think it's bad now? It'll be nothing in comparison to what happens then because these men will preach They will prophesy, they will speak the word of God and the whole world will hear them. And you kind of get the picture that as people want to approach them to harm them, you get the idea, right? There's like they're sending in SWAT teams to remove these guys and shut them up. React teams, SEAL Team 6, you know, the Mossad teams, they're all going to be going and what's going to happen? As they go in and they get near and they're, they're, they're drawing near, what's going to happen? They're going to be destroyed. They're going to be smoked. Because God is going to give these witnesses the ability with fire to proceed from their mouth and devour their enemies. One of the reasons I think that Elijah is definitely one of these is in in, uh, the book of 2 Kings, chapter 1, people were being sent to detain Elijah and to basically tell him to stop his ministry. And three times, a king sent a company of 50 men to detain him. You can go read the story in 2 Kings chapter 1. And as they would come and approach him, fire from heaven would be called down and smoke them. That happened twice when the third team came. Uh, The man came and said, look, I've got a family. I get it. I understand what's happening here. Would you please come with us? If you won't, that's okay. I'll just go back and tell the king you're not coming. But Elijah in that situation said that he would come. But you see these similarities between this and what happened in the Old Testament. Very, very similar things. So if anyone wants to harm them, they will not be allowed. And it says they must be killed in this manner. And they have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls. In 1 Kings 17, excuse me, 1 Kings 18, Elijah was given the ability to call down fire from heaven against the prophets of Baal. He was also given the ability to shut up heaven so that it didn't rain. Jesus spoke of Elijah in Luke 4.25 and James spoke of him in James 5.17 about these things, these exact things that we are told here in Revelation 11.5 and 6. And then Moses Can you think of a time that Moses did things like uh, have power over the waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues? I mean, we, we know that was something that Moses did. Remember in Exodus chapter 7 through 12, God enabled, he empowered Moses through those 10 plagues to turn the water to blood, to send frogs on the land, to send gnats and flies to cause livestock to die, to cause boils to fall upon people, sores, hail, locusts, darkness, and then, of course, the death of the firstborn, which invoked the Passover. And I believe because of the mirroring of those things here, that that is the strongest case to say that it would be Elijah and Moses. But again, whether it's them or not doesn't matter. These two witnesses will be empowered by God to do these things. And notice in verse 7, when they finish their testimony, 
The beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. So for that 42 months, that 1260 days, that period of time, the three and a half years that they are there ministering, their ministry will not be up until their ministry is up. Do you get the picture here? That God says they have a time and they have a message and they have a ministry. And until that time is up, when God says, okay, now your ministry is over, at that point, it, notice he says here that the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit, we believe that this is the exact moment in which the Antichrist will come and go into the temple, which we'll see again in chapter 13, and declare himself to be God and declare that all the world must worship him and declare that all the world must take his mark in order to buy and sell to indicate that they are under his rule and under his reign. And the Antichrist there is, of course, mirroring what God had done, where God marks his ministers, he marks his people. That during the time of the tribulation, those who believe, we call them the tribulation saints, that they will have a mark of God upon them as they believe in God, as they believe in Jesus. So God is divinely in control of ordering the events and the sequencing during the duration of their life. And I don't think it's a stretch at all to say that God in like manner does the same for you and me. Sometimes you may ask the question, as we often do, if we think about these things deeply, why am I here and what is God's purpose for my life? What does God have for me to do? How can or how should I serve him? While I certainly cannot determine that for you, you can determine that by being in God's presence, by reading his word, by seeking his face, by praying and understanding what it is that he wants you to do. And understand this, that you will do what God wants you to do for as long as God wants you to do it. When God says it's over, then it's over. I've heard people say it this way, in a sense, that you are immortal until God says that you no longer are. Meaning that God is in charge of your life just as he was in charge of their life, just as God was in charge of the lives of all of his servants throughout the course of the scriptures. The apostle Paul, the other apostles, Jesus' time on the earth himself, the prophets, the amount of time that they ministered. God is in charge of those things. So in verse 8, we're told that their dead bodies will lie in the streets of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. So they will be so happy, the world will be so happy that these prophets, these witnesses are dead, that they will leave them in the streets and Isn't this bizarre to think that for three and a half days you'll flip on your TV and there's the live feed of these two dead bodies decomposing in the streets. And they'll be celebrating Dead Prophets Day around the world during this period of time or whatever they call it. And this will be talked about and then we're we're told as we uh, read down a little bit further here, uh, verse 9, then those... From the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and will not allow their their bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them 
make merry and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. There will be a new holiday declared because these two prophets have been killed. It'll be like Christmas. It'll be some holiday where they give gifts back and forth to celebrate their death. The fact that the word of God has been silenced, that their voice has been silenced, the world will rejoice over this. Now again, looking back to the Old Testament, if you want to turn there, turn to Psalm 79. And as we read verses 1 through 3, I ask you, what is this describing? But this scene in Revelation 8, Psalm 79, verse 1, O God, the nations have come into your inheritance, your holy temple they have defiled. They have laid Jerusalem in heaps. The dead bodies of your servants they have given as food for the birds of the heavens, the flesh of your saints to the beasts of the earth. Their blood they have shed like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. Wow. Doesn't that sound exactly like Revelation chapter 11? And notice here he said that Jerusalem, the city where our Lord was crucified, is called spiritually Sodom and Egypt. We don't have time to go through all the scriptures, but in the book of Isaiah and in the book of Jeremiah, God, speaking to his people, said this of them. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 9, Unless the Lord of hosts had left us, excuse me, left to us a very small remnant, we would have become like Sodom, we would have been made like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand and to trample my courts? What is God talking about here? Remember how in the New Testament, Jesus says, these people come to worship, but their hearts are far from me. And God had reached a place where his, with his people that they were just going through the motions. They were just doing religious ritual. They were going, they were making the sacrifices, they were giving the offerings, they were putting their money in the offering plate and doing all of those things. And God said, none of it means anything. Why? Because it's not being done with the right heart. It's not being done spiritually because you love me, because you want to bless me. In Jeremiah 23, uh, a similar thing, I've seen folly in the prophets of Samaria. They prophesied by Baal and caused my people Israel to err. I've also seen a horrible thing in the prophets of Jerusalem. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They also strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns back from his wickedness. All of them are like Sodom to me and her inhabitants like Gomorrah. There in Jeremiah, speaking of Jerusalem, speaking of his people, You see, uh, Sodom, you remember from the book of Genesis, is a place where heinous and offensive sexual sin took place before God. And due to the extremity of their marring of the image of God, remember we are created in the image of God, God breathed down fire and brimstone upon them and destroyed that city. 
Remember Egypt. Egypt, as we look through the Old Testament, especially the time when God allowed Moses to rescue the Israelites from the rule of Pharaoh. That was the place of bondage and slavery. And remember, Egypt is so often spoken of as a type of the world and being in bondage to the world and slave to sin. So sin in its worst form, sexual sin, uh, sin in terms of being bonded in bondage to the world and being enslaved to the world. Now there's a passage, and I do want to read this because it's important for us to understand, of why did God call his holy city Jerusalem and his people spiritually to be like Sodom and Gomorrah? Uh, you, again, you can turn there if you want, but in Ezekiel 23, and I'm going to read this from the New Living Translation because it's going to put things into a perspective by using more updated language because some of the language it uses when you read it in the other translations, and I read all the other translations, uh, uses words that I'm sure none of us would know and you would have to look up. So I'm going to read out of the New Living Translation, Ezekiel 23. Now this is again speaking to why did God do this and this is important for us because God is dealing with his people Israel and ultimately he's dealing with anyone who says, I'm known by the name of God, I belong to Christ. The message came to me from the Lord. Son of man, once there were two sisters who were daughters of the same mother. They became prostitutes in Egypt. Even as young girls, they allowed men to fondle their breasts. The older girl was named Ohala, and her sister was Oholabah. I married them, and they bore me sons and daughters, and I am speaking of Samaria and Jerusalem. For Ahola is Samaria, and Aholabah is Jerusalem. Then Ahola lusted after other lovers instead of me, and she gave her love to the Assyrian officers. They were all attractive young men, captains and commanders dressed in handsome blue, charioteers driving their horses. So you get the sense with the language, right? These are people who are wealthy. They were rich. They were driving nice cars. Hopefully you can make the crossover in your mind. And so she prostituted herself with the most desirable men of Assyria, worshiping their idols and defiling herself. For when she left Egypt, she did not leave her spirit of prostitution behind. She was still as lewd as in her youth. And when the Egyptians slept with her, fondled her breast and used her as a prostitute. This is the picture God is painting. But to me, the worst is the end of the chapter in verse 19. Yet she turned to even greater prostitution, remembering her youth when she was a prostitute in Egypt. This is hard to read. She lusted after lovers with genitals as large as a donkey's and emissions like those of a horse. And so, Aholabah, you relieved your former days as a young girl in Egypt when you first allowed your breasts to be fondled. This was God's broken heart over Jerusalem and Samaria and his people. And here he is in the time of the tribulation, once again, rather than gathering his people to him. Remember Jesus on the day of the triumphal entry when he rode into Jerusalem? 
And in Luke's gospel, Jesus is crying out and he's weeping. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you've killed the prophets. You've turned your heart, your back on God. And this is a day when you didn't know that I, your Messiah, the one whom God has sent to you, you you don't even recognize me. And Jesus is weeping uncontrollably and bitterly. And I imagine in like manner that as God is having to execute this judgment through the two witnesses on the city, that his heart is broken. Verse 10, and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Now, after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. So God will resurrect these two prophets. Now, why three and a half days? No one knows. We can't even speculate about that. But God waited until the world had been rejoicing. They had made this holiday. They were sending gifts to one another. They're so grateful that they no longer have to hear the words from these prophets, from these witnesses. And this reminds me of that picture in Ezekiel chapter 39 where God goes into the valley of dry bones and he breathes his breath back into those bones and he raises up an army for himself out of dead men. And he does this and resurrects these two men, verse 12, and they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And so once again, with the whole world watching, they've watched their ministry for three and a half years. They watched them get massacred by the beast, by Satan himself. And they watched them lie in the streets for three and a half days, dead. And now God resurrects them. And then God says with a voice that not only they can hear, but no doubt the world can hear, come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud. And their enemies saw them. In the same hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. This is the first and the only reference in the book of Revelation of people repenting. Out of all the times that God calls out to the people during the time of the tribulation to repent and to turn to him, that they actually repent. Now we know people, again, they became tribulation saints, but this is the first time we see people, you know, repent and give glory to the God of heaven. Up till now, they haven't done it. They've been living with this hardness of heart. And notice during this time, all the way up to this moment in verse 14, where it says the second woe is past, behold, the third woe is coming quickly, that we've been in this interlude, but we've also been under, as Pastor Mitch shared with us a couple of weeks ago out of chapter nine, the, the, the last three trumpets were called the three trumpets of woe. So we've been living under the woe of the previous two trumpets. So if you want to turn back to chapter 9, the fifth trumpet was the locust from the bottomless pit, and the sixth trumpet was the angels from the Euphrates. And they were, again, executing plagues and judgment and justice upon the earth. And during this whole time, men are not repenting. They are not responding to the truth of God's word. 
So because of time, we'll have to pick it up next week, beginning with the seventh trumpet in chapter 11, verse 15. But it says here again in verse 14, the second woe is past, behold, the third woe is coming. So we now are at a point, according to what's being shared with us here, where the first half of the tribulation is being brought to a close, where the Antichrist has gone and declared himself to be God. And now with this last trumpet, he's going to initiate the bowl judgments. And with the initiation of that, we will see the great tribulation being triggered. And we will see things happening in such a way that we never thought possible, that we never thought we'd actually see with human eyes on this earth since the things we've read during the time of the Old Testament. And God will continue to pour out his wrath on a sinful, Christ-rejecting, unbelieving world Not because he hates people. God does not hate people. God loves people and he wants to rescue them. And remember, uh, back in chapter 8, we took some time to talk about why is the tribulation happening. Because God has finally, during the time of the tribulation, reached an end. His patience has come to an end with mankind. And we talked about the fact of how the Jews reckon time, uh, their calendar says this is year, I forget the year, 5782 or something like that. And they reckon time from when they believe the creation happened, from when Genesis 1-1 happened. So if you take that for the sake of discussion, for 5,700 plus years, God has been patient with mankind. God doesn't hate people. God loves people. This is why he sent his son, Jesus Christ. And when it says that, that Jesus was the propitiation for our sins, a word we don't often use, that word means the satisfaction of God's wrath. And so the idea of the gospel is that if you believe in Jesus and you accept his sacrifice as the payment for your sins, as the atonement for your sin then you will not have to undergo the wrath of God. You will be delivered and you will be given into the hand of God himself. You will be a son or a daughter of Jesus Christ if you believe. You see, it's not complicated. Repent, believe, turn to Jesus. But if you will not, then you will be going through things like this. And and for those who die without Christ, you know, the sad thing is that we are told the great white throne judgment, which is coming at the end of the book of Revelation, is what they will experience. And of course, we don't want that for anyone. We don't wish that upon anyone. I don't wish that upon my worst enemies, and neither should you. What we should wish for them and pray and hope is that before it's too late, they would turn to Christ They would repent. They would turn to God. They would receive his generous, kind offer of love and grace and mercy now, before it's too late. I don't know about you, but have you ever thought you had enough time to do something only to realize you didn't? I think it happens to us all the time, doesn't it? Don't make that mistake with your life. I'll repent when. When what? When you've had your fun? When your wild oats have been sown? 
when you've done this or that, or maybe thinking you'll do it before you get on your deathbed or as you get older. When I, if I make it to 80, then I'll repent. The Bible is very, very clear. It says you do not know how long your life, and the Bible speaks of my life and your life as a vapor. It says you don't, you don't know how long your vapor is. You have no idea. Only God knows that. So my encouragement to you today is that you would turn to Christ now before it's too late. My plead with you is to believe in Jesus, accept the goodness of God, accept the blood of Christ as the payment for your sins so that you can be in his presence forever and ever. I'm sure the ministry of the two witnesses will include the gospel. And so the world... During that time, the two witnesses will preach. The 144,000 Jewish witnesses are going to and fro throughout the whole earth and they're preaching. No one can say that God is not gracious and merciful. He's making every effort to get his word out across the planet. And we did a little bit of that yesterday in what we did. But God wants all of his people to carry the great commission, the good news, the gospel to the world. And so today, Lord, we just turn to you right now. If there be any here among us who have been listening, who have never believed in you or trusted in you, God, we just cry out right now on their behalf for them that they would turn to you. And if that's you today and you would like to to give your heart to Christ and you'd like to believe and be forgiven, that you'd like to receive the free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, then we ask that you just do that right now, that you cry out to God. And that you say something to him of your own accord, but something like, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. Please come into my life and forgive me and make me your son or your daughter. I want to be with you forever in heaven. And I want to know your goodness. I'm tired of the life that I've been living and the struggles that I'm having, Lord. So please come into my life right now. And we pray, Lord, for any that maybe have been on the edge or maybe they've been um, in a state where they've walked away from you and they've been away from you for a long time, maybe this would be a time where you would just call them back to yourself. That they would just say, Lord, I return to you this morning. So God, we love you, we bless you. We thank you that you're so kind and merciful to us. And Lord, as we sing this last song, would you just fill us with hope and wonder and praise and rejoicing at your goodness in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.